Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Chris Brooke Carter, Chief Executive of Retail Trust, the trade charity for the 4.5 million people working in retail and the supporting service industries, which was established in 1832. Chris, hello. Hi there. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally, uh, we'd go directly into the concept of leadership, but uh, considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I think we should start there. So the last few months has been a very difficult time, obviously, for brick-and-mortar retail, uh, as well as the rest of the economy in general. How has COVID-19 affected your organization and your sector? Well, absolutely. I think um, we're facing into one of the biggest crises that um, uh, the retail industry has um, ever had to face into. And of course, this has been a, um, an industry that has been in turmoil and flux for some time now with the ongoing uh, pressures around digitalization and all that's done to um, business models and changes in consumer uh, behavior and how, um, how shopping is shifting online and also disaggregating um, uh, you know, traditional businesses are losing an awful lot of the loyalty that they used to have. Um, that's causing distress anyway. And then I think what we've seen with uh, the COVID-19 crisis is uh, an acceleration of those trends um, and putting uh, pressure that a number of businesses simply haven't uh, got the capabilities to bear um, and are sending them under. Um, but also actually some of the you know, businesses that um, previously we would have assumed had um, very stable um, uh, business models, uh, good balance sheets, um, uh, good profitability, and have put have been put under extraordinary pressure um, by um, uh, this crisis. Um, you know, you look at a business like Primark, for example, and it just simply wasn't able to trade for um, sort of around ten weeks. And um, you know, the, the retail industry just isn't set up to be able to cope with that lack of cash coming into the organisations. Um, I think the industry um, largely, when you look at it, has responded extremely well. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the the efforts of the grocers and uh, other essential retailers to keep the um, keep the country ticking along has um, really reminded everyone of just how essential um, a sector this is to um, the UK, both economically, but I think culturally and socially um, as well. Um, and I'm hoping. Uh, from our point of view, that will remind people that you know, that, that, um, that these workers, as you, as you mentioned in your opening, 4.5 million people that rely on retail for their employment, it will remind them just um, uh, how important those individuals are. And I guess for us, we're, what we're hoping is that we will see um, uh, you know, renewed interest in supporting us, um, trying to do the, the work that we're doing, which is effectively to look after um, the most vulnerable in the sector. And there are a lot of those that 4.5 million people are. Um, on minimum wage or zero-hour contracts and uh, and such like. And uh, our, our sort of vision and purpose is to be their safety net. So when they get into trouble, um, whether it's health or financial uh, in particular, um, we're there to um, guide them, offer them support, direct them to the right kinds of services. And we offer grants, uh, financial grants don't have to be paid back if they need um, uh, access to cash for, because of an emergency, but also access to um, uh, psychological um, help, mental, m you know, mental um, uh, support through our counsellors 
um, to get them through difficult times. And there's been an enormous spike um, in incoming activity and requests for both of those services across this crisis as people have, A, I think, feared going to work because of the, of the virus in the first place. And then secondly, um, either faced or have uh, the prospect of being made um, redundant or actually have been made redundant. And of course, you know, no, everyone who reads um, uh, the newspapers at the moment will be uh, fully aware of the number of job cuts that are um, being taken within retail. And I'm afraid that we feel this is probably just the start. Well, indeed, it is a, a very much a changing time. There are some aspects of retail that can't be replicated in the online sphere as well, which is important for people to understand, isn't it? Such as uh, having a, a bespoke suit made or uh, many other things that the customer actually needs to be there. What is the industry doing uh, to reassure the public that these services will still be available uh, when this period is over? Well, yes, and I, look, I think um, I think that uh, there are obviously um, a number of advantages to having a store over just uh, having a website. But as technology advances, even even things like having a, a bespoke suit made, for example, um, I think you'll see um, uh, on online options to, to have have that done. As, as I say, as technology just gets um, uh, cleverer and cleverer. And that said, you know, there are um, a lot of people in the country who um, enjoy shopping as a pastime. Um, there are a number of uh, services that require a personal touch where we'll want to, you know, we'll want to go into stores and get advice and um, speak to people and see the product before, before we buy it. Um, and look, retail isn't going to die um, as, a, as a result of this. It's been on a, a changing journey really um, since the early 2000s when the likes of Amazon and eBay launched um, all those years ago. It's been on this um, you know, enormous change process anyway, and it's just evolving. Um, and as I say, I think what we'll see is uh, fewer stores up and down the country, most certainly, as, as more and more customers shift uh, their purchases to um, uh, on, uh, online channels. But, and, but the purpose of the stores that do remain will change. And um, whether there'll be showrooms, whether there'll be uh, centers of uh, experiences, um, whether retailers will start offering um, uh, more services, um, for for example, alongside um, selling products, so, you know, People can go in and get things done as well as um, buying product. I think that, that, that we'll see more and more of that coming in, into the industry um, as uh, the next couple of years uh, progress. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm still very positive about the industry. It's an industry that I love and it's full of wonderful brands and wonderful people um, who are incredibly um, entrepreneurial. Um, but I think what we'll see is just a, a changing shape of the sector. Mm. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Uh, for me, I, I think it's about um, direction. I think it's about providing people um, um, with hope um, a, a, about the future um, and um, creating a vision of um, what can be achieved um, uh, you know, when people put their minds to it. So my my own style, I guess, and the, and the, the leaders that I have thrived uh, under uh, over my career have been those that have provided um, a vision and of, of a future that I'm excited by and I can and buy into, um, and then have given me the the room and the space to um, find my own way of of, of getting there. Um, so hope and hope and direction, I think, for me, are the two big words that I've always. Um, hoped I can, mm. uh, you know, bring to an organization or a team that I'm that I've been involved in. 
How would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? Uh, I think it's uh, collaborative um, uh, and supportive. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'm very clear that I'm not there to, to do the job of my team. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm there to help um, create purpose, and, and then I think to um, clear, clear the, clear the road so people can, you know, can do their jobs jobs well my, my I spend a lot of time thinking about our culture um, and the way that we do things uh, rather than what what we're doing and, and how we execute I guess I think as I say I feel that that's that's something that um, individual people should take responsibility and accountability for so um, I, I try and spend as much of my time um, uh, thinking about the culture how people uh, interact with one another and what we should expect from from one another um, and as I say, then try and encourage people to find their own way towards our sort of common goal. Of course, uh, leadership is a learned uh, behavior. Uh, how would you say you came to yours? Would you say that you had a role model centric uh, training in leadership or were you more uh, uh, rooted in circumstance? Uh, I think a, a mixture of both. I think I've been very fortunate over the years to have very strong um, role model, you know, role models from from my father, who was uh, chief executive um, as I was growing up, all the way through to to the people within my uh, you know my organisations that I've I've been in, involved in. Um, but I've also, I think, been very interested in the concept of leadership, purely from an academic point of view, actually from a um, you know, um, a factual point of view, and um, drawn to biographies of, of strong leaders, drawn to um, ideas around the concept of leadership and how it's evolved um, over time. Um, and then I think I've been very lucky in um, in, in my chosen career path before being um, chief executive at the, at the trust. I was um, a journalist by trade in in in, in the business world, um, and that has been a, an incredibly privileged position to be in because I've got to meet extraordinary people and I've had the chance to sit down with them and ask them about themselves and learn from them. And, and particularly over the last sort of 15 years that I've been involved in retail, I've been surrounded um, by some of the most extraordinary business leaders um, in the UK. Um, and um, I've always taken the opportunity to try and learn from them. Uh, understand um, what's made them successful or why people have uh, follow, followed them. So I think it, there's just been a, a deep-seated interest in the concept of leadership and why someone uh, can convince people to follow them and where others can't. Well, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months look like for Retail Trust? Uh, well, I think for me it is about us building um, a coalition now, I think, a coalition of leaders and businesses uh, around British retail who, as we come out of um, this crisis, are committed uh, to putting the health and the happiness of the, their workforce um, at the forefront of their strategies and recognizing that any successful rebuilding of our industry and, and the British economy is going to be rooted in whether um, we are able to um, create healthy and happy workforces, and that, that, that health and wealth are, um, you know, part and parcel of the same um, package, really. And, um, and for me, you know, building that consensus, getting people on board with the idea that you know, if we can look after 
um, what is effectively retail's most valuable asset is people, mm. um, then we will come out this the other side. So we will be campaigning really hard on that, uh, creating a lot of content around that. We've got lots of services to support the sector in doing that. But um, critical for me, is, as I say, is that coalition of, of um, the leadership at the top of uh, British retail in, in committing to um, really putting its people first in, in how it decides it wants to move forward once, um, once this crisis is over. Well, Chris, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure having you. We'll have to have you back when things get back to normal. But for now, Chris, thank you. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Chris Brooke Carter, Chief Executive of Retail Trust. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. So, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. It, the pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system, um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game, and I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt, and I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning 
from other more experienced people, this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. 
But I, I did ask it for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? 
just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eve, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about 
the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup. I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight, rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got 
a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. 
Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.